morning. Good to see you. My name is Luke. Uh, I'm one of the pastors, and I'm going to try to help us make some sense of what you just read, which uh, could be challenging. So that's what we're going to uh, do here. If you weren't with us last week, make sure you go back and you watch or listen to the message that's online. All our archive sermons are there. Uh, we really unpacked a verse that helps us understand kind of what we say around here a lot, that all of life is all for Jesus. So make sure you watch that. At the end of that message, we also issued a tithe challenge, challenging people for 90 days to step up their generosity because our hearts follow our treasure. And we had almost 70 people take that challenge, which is really cool. And so I'm excited for that and thankful if you're one of those people, uh, hang in there and pray. You're going to be tested. You're going to be challenged. And I think you're going to find that it's worth it. We do have a class coming up as well for those who have taken the tithe challenge or if you haven't but you're still interested in kind of getting your financial house in order it's called crown uh, crown money life finance class tomorrow's the deadline to sign up for this so there's information in your program about it you can find out more in the past we've used financial peace university at times we've also done this class before both classes are great and uh, we'll continue to offer both at different points but this is the one that we're offering this fall so if you're interested check it out all right well, a few weeks ago, when we were in, I think, the end of Mark 10 or 11, somewhere in there, I told you, this is a passage I've been waiting to preach on for 10 months. Some of you may remember that, uh, right? There's parts of this series that I have been so excited as we've gotten to the various passages. Oh, I can't wait to preach this. Today's not one of those. Today is not one at all. In fact, today is a passage of Scripture that we're only teaching because we teach through books of the Bible, right? If we didn't teach through books of the Bible, if we just kind of did topical or thematic series, we'd never pick this. It's hard to understand. What we understand, we, we kind of go, I don't know if I, what I think about that or what I like about that. It's really kind of tricky. And I'm curious, anyone ever read the Bible before? You've ever read a part of the Bible and go, I don't, I don't get it. Just a few of you. Okay, the rest of you are liars, or you've just never read the Bible, right? So we get that. It is tough to read. It's tough to understand at, at parts. And, um, and what I have to do every week, and I, I love this. This is a huge privilege to get to teach God's Word. And what I do is I, I go through a significant study process where I try to understand what is this text saying? What does it mean? How does it apply? Um, and then I come and I give a sermon, right? And I, it's kind of like I take a math test and I just, show, I just give the answer. Most of the time, I don't have to show my work, right? right? Sometimes if you, my wife was a math teacher, right? And it's one thing to get the right answer. It's another thing to show your work. How did you get there? And sometimes you see little parts of, of how I got there. But what I want to do today, because I know that all of us have had the, the situation where we read a passage of Scripture and go, how do I make sense of this? How do I understand this? We've all had that. So what I want to do today is I want to frame the message through the lens of how do you study a hard passage? I want to kind of show you my work so to speak. And not, not all of it. I worked longer than 35 minutes, trust me, on this. But, but we're going to try to help you just kind of get a framework for how do I understand a tough passage of Scripture. Now, I'm going to tell you right off the bat, it requires work, right? If you read casually a difficult passage of Scripture and go, I don't get it, you're going to have to work to get it, right? You can't just keep reading it casually and get it. There's some work involved. There's some process involved. And I want to unpack a little bit of what that is for us today, all right? So in order to study a tough passage, there's a series of things we have to do. Now, when I study the Bible, I don't necessarily 
uh, follow this like explicitly. It's kind of intuitive now. I've studied the Bible so much and for so long that this kind of has become a little bit natural. So I'm trying to deconstruct a little bit and go, when you face a tough passage, what do, what do we, how do you do it? And then I want to use that to try to understand what Jesus is talking about here in this particular passage, all right? So the first step when you run into a difficult passage is that you need to ask for God's help in discerning. You need to ask for God's help. There's a method to studying the Bible. There's a way to study the Bible. But you cannot imagine, right, this is a grave error if you think that simply by applying the right study method, scientifically sort of just breaking it down and investigating it, that you'll get the right answer. This is a spiritual book breathed out by God, and you need God's Spirit to help you understand it. Otherwise, all you have is your own senses of things, and you need more than that. So we need to ask for God's Spirit anytime we read God's Word to help us discern it. So let's, let's apply that. Let's do that now. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do ask for your help now. God, you've given us this Word, this passage for a reason, and you would want us to understand it and live differently as a result, and so we pray you'd give us discernment, give us wisdom, give us understanding as we seek to try to put it together and and figure out what it means and how it applies. We ask for your help with that. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, so first, we ask for God's help. Second, we've got to understand context, right? It's never wise to just rip open the Bible and start reading and imagine that you know what's going on, right? This, This wasn't a letter or a book written to you in 2015 directly. It was written to someone else a long time ago, and there was a context, and there were relationships, and there were understandings going on back there that you have to understand before you can ask, well, what does this mean for me today in 2015, all right? So what's the context? Well, the context of Mark is that Mark is written by a guy named Mark, hey, we're with it. Good job. That's a good start. Mark was a close associate of Peter. Peter was one of Jesus' apostles. And Mark tells us in the very first verse of this book why he wrote it. He said, this is the beginning of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, the Son of God. So he's writing this to help us see Jesus and to help us see that Jesus is the Son of God. That's the big picture context of his book. Now, the context specifically in this section is that we are now in the last week of Jesus' earthly ministry. He will die on Friday. He'll be resurrected on Sunday. And we are in this chapter, in chapter 12, on Tuesday. Now, what happened on Monday was that Jesus had gone into the temple and he saw all the corruption and he saw all the commercialism and all the consumerism and all the other isms that was happening in the temple that wasn't prayer and devotion to God. And he said, enough. And he turns over the tables and he wreaks havoc in the whole place. What do you imagine is going to happen Tuesday? Right, imagine if someone just came in right now and started like turning over chairs and yelling and screaming and making the whole service stop. What would happen? Well, some of you would just run away, right? But, but there would be security people. There would be leaders. There would be people that would get involved and go, what are you doing? Who, are, who do you think you are? And so that's exactly what happens on Tuesday. Jesus shows back up and the leaders are there to meet him and go, who do you think you are? What do you think you're doing? And so this context is Jesus having this showdown in the temple with all these religious leaders. Last week, we looked at him talk to the Pharisees. This week, we look at him talk to the Sadducees. These are different religious groups. The next week, he'll talk to the scribes. So that's the context. That's what's happening. So we ask for God's help. We ask what the context is. The next question we ask is, what background information do I need? 
What background information do I need? See, there's these huge cultural and historical gaps between where we are and this particular passage, right? Mark here is going to talk about Sadducees. Who are they? He's going to talk about resurrection. What is that? He's going to quote different parts of the Bible that you may or may not be familiar with, right? And so there's some background information that you've got to know in order to be able to make sense of any passage that you're reading, but especially these difficult ones. All right, so what background information do we need? Well, first, verse 18 tells us about the Sadducees. Verse 18, and Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. Who are these Sadducees? This is a group of people, right? Mark doesn't assume you know everything about them, right? And so if you read who are the Sadducees, you go, I see Sadducees, what do I do? Well, you keep reading, because Mark tells you something about them. It says, and Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. So Mark says, here's what you got to know about the Sadducees. They say there's no resurrection. Now, if you were a nerd who grew up in church, right, someone came up to me afterward and they go, don't you know the, don't you know the joke about the Sadducees? <laughs> Some of you, you know it. You, you're nerds. You're already laughing. I've heard it, but I forgot, right? And well, the Sadducees, they, they, they didn't believe in the resurrection, so they were sad, you see? <laughs> right? So if you didn't grow up in church, congratulations. You, you're, you're better off than we are. But that's what Mark tells us. The Sadducees didn't believe there was a resurrection. Okay, that's an important note, because Mark is writing to a Roman audience. They don't know about the Sadducees. They don't know all this background stuff. So Mark says, hey, the core thing you got to know about the Sadducees to understand this passage is they don't believe there's a resurrection. But what else? What else might we know? See, we live in this age where there is a wealth of resources about background and history and context and all these things. It's amazing. And so if you want to understand that, you need to get some additional tools, some additional resources. You may have wondered, why is this giant book on my table? This is an ESV study Bible. I wanted to show this to you. ESV study Bible. It also doubles as a shield right? Because it's huge, and you couldn't like cut through it with a sword, I don't think. Maybe one of those really strong guys could rip it apart. I don't know. But the ESV Study Bible is a great resource. If you don't have a study Bible, get this or get one like this. Um, what these study Bibles do is, in addition to having the text of Scripture, they have some commentary, they have some articles, they have some background things that help you really understand this. Here's a picture of, of what uh, you know, the ESV Study Bible would look like. Right? There's the Bible's text at the top, and then at the bottom, there's notes and and there's maps, and there's drawings, and there's things. I know some of you are familiar with that. Some of you have things like that. If you don't, those kind of tools exist, and you should get them. Now, I don't personally like to read and pray out of this most of the time, but I like to study out of it, and so it's a helpful tool. And so if you got something like this, you could open it up to an article like I do here, Jewish groups at the time of the New Testament, and you could read about the Sadducees, and what are they all about, and you find some things out if you read that. What you find out is that the Sadducees, first of all, not only did they not believe in the resurrection, but they also, they only accepted the first five books of the Bible as being God's word. So those are known as the books of Moses, or the Pentateuch, or the Torah, right? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. The Sadducees said, that's the only part that's scripture. Not the Psalms, not the prophets, not the wisdom literature, not the writings, not the history, just that. Okay? So that's an important thing to know. Second thing to know is that the Sadducees were a small but powerful group. There weren't a lot of Sadducees, but the ones that, that existed had power and they had wealth. They accumulated that wealth mostly by kind of co-opting with the Roman government. 
So they were more willing to kind of sell out on some spiritual convictions in order to be, you know, pleasing in the eyes of the Romans. And like most wealthy and powerful people, they wanted to protect that. They wanted to keep that. And the resurrection, part of why they don't like it is because it poses a huge threat. We'll talk about that in a minute. So those are the Sadducees. Only believe in the first five books. Don't believe in the resurrection. Eager to protect their power and wealth. You need to know that. All right, then the next question, background information. What's the resurrection? Right, Mark doesn't explain it. He assumes you know it. He assumes you know what it is. Well, you don't, maybe. And the Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. What's a resurrection? The resurrection is the idea that there is coming at some point in history, in the future, a future universal rising from the dead to eternal life or eternal condemnation. That's what the resurrection is. A future, it's coming someday, universal, it applies to everybody, everybody who has ever died will be raised to eternal life or eternal condemnation. That's the teaching of the resurrection. Now, where does that come from? Well, it comes from a number of places in the Old Testament. Let me show you a few examples. Ezekiel 37 says, Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. Isaiah 26, 19. Your dead shall live. Their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. For your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. Daniel 12, 2. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Now, the biblical verses that talk about the resurrection, there aren't a lot of them. And they don't go a lot in depth. It's sort of hinted at and told a little bit about. But notice, if you're aware of kind of how the Bible's set up, all those verses I just quoted are not from the books of Moses. They're from the prophets. They're from the writings. And so all these things that teach about the resurrection, the Sadducees said, we don't affirm that. That's not part of our Bible. You know, you guys are, you know, that's other stuff. We don't, we don't look at that. And they're going, we can't see anything in the old, you know, the, the first five books that talk about a resurrection. Now, this is important to know. Not only did they not see it, they didn't want to see it. A lot of times people who have really strong convictions about stuff, if you start to get into it, you go, why do you have that? And a lot of times what you find out is they're protecting themselves. There's something to lose if they change their mind. And there was something significant for the, fair, for the Sadducees who were hungry to keep power that they would lose. N.T. writes a British a scholar who has just studied a lot and, and has a lot of insight into the background and the history on this stuff. Here's what he says about this. He says, in particular, the Sadducees saw belief in resurrection as politically risky. People who believe that God is going to recreate the whole world, including Israel, and even including their own dead bodies, are much more likely to do daring and risky things. Do you get what they're saying? Right? The Sadducees, they believed... You live, you die, you're fertilizer. The resurrection teaches you live, your body and soul, you, you live, you die, your body and soul are separated, and then at some point you're resurrected to a new physical bodily life, right? What N.T. Wright is pointing out is that if you believe that, 
and you believe that in on, you, you will do whatever it takes to honor God because you're going to have reward for it, that might lead you to do risky and daring things, right? And at this point, the Sadducees were experiencing lots of insurrectionists, lots of people who were causing revolt, right? Revolting against the Roman government in the name of God, thinking they would have eternal reward, right? That maybe should sound familiar to us today. Right? One of the biggest issues our whole world is facing is how to think through radical jihadism. Right? And one of the things that motivates jihadists is what? Seventy virgins. Paradise. Right? And so the, so the, the Sadducees, they have some vested interest in going, we don't believe in this. Because if this is true, this might motivate people to really come against us, to revolt. So that's the Sadducees. That's the resurrection. Here's an important thing we got to note, though. Not only did the Sadducees misunderstand resurrection, so do we. So do we. See, they thought it was you live, you die, and you're fertilizer. But we think about it usually like you live, you die, and you go to heaven. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible doesn't say that you go on to heaven in some sort of spiritual thing forever and ever. The Bible says that you live, you die, your soul is separated from your body. You might call that going to heaven. And then you are reconstituted and transformed in a new resurrection that's physical and that's real. This is one of the reasons why I just think the, um, you might call them heaven tourism books. Have you seen these? Right? 90 minutes in heaven, heaven is for real, right? The, the, the heaven tourism books, right? They, people that went to heaven and they come to write about what it's like there. Even if all those are true, which I'm highly suspicious of a lot of it, but even if it's true, what they're doing is describing the waiting room. Because what the Bible says is you teach, or you, the Bible teaches you live and you die, and then someday you experience the fullness of new heavens and new earth. And many of us as Christians, we're confused about that too. So we bring our own misunderstandings and misconceptions to this as well. All right, so in verse 19, they get into their issue. It says in verse 19, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. All right, one last piece of background. What are they talking about? What's this law about marrying your brother's wife? What? Well, what he's talking about is it comes from Deuteronomy 25. Deuteronomy 25, this is sort of like an Israelite social security plan, right? So if a widow, uh, right, if, if a woman is widowed and has no sons and now no husband, there's nobody to take care of her. There's nobody to protect her. There's nobody to fight on her behalf. And so the way that the Israelite law protected against that was to say that the husband who's now dead, if he had a brother, that brother is now obligated to marry that woman and to have a child with her that is going to continue the original brother's name. So what this did is this allowed the brother's name to continue. It allowed the woman to have someone to care for her, to have someone to provide for her, that sort of a thing. We look at it and go, I don't want my brother anywhere near my wife, <laughs> right? This sounds crazy, and it, it does sound crazy to us. But that's what's going on. That's what they're talking about. And that's the context. Now, the Sadducees would have affirmed that because that's Deuteronomy. That's in the book of Moses. They would have said, yes, that's how it should be. And that leads them into their next big question. And that leads us really to the next part of how you study a tough or really any passage is you have to ask, what question or questions is this text answering? What questions are being asked here? 
What's really going on? So, let's read this next section and see if we can come up with what's the question? What are they asking? So, verse 19, they explain the Deuteronomy 25 thing. Then verse 20, there were seven brothers. So they go, all right, Jesus, we got a scenario for you based on Deuteronomy 25. We got a scenario. Let's see your resurrection theory here. Verse 20, there were seven brothers. The first took a wife. When he died, he left no offspring. So the second took her and died, left no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife, right? So you, you see what they do. They take this situation. Their, their point would have been made with two, right? Whose wife will she be if he had two? But they make seven because they're trying to make a big point. They're trying to show, Jesus, this whole thing's ridiculous. This whole resurrection idea. Are you crazy, right? So, so what question are they asking? Well, on the surface, it seems like they're asking, whose wife is she? Right? That's actually what they say. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? But there's another question they're asking, isn't there? And you know that because of Mark's clue that this is, these guys deny the resurrection. What's the real question they're asking? The real question they're asking is, how could there be a resurrection? Right? That's their whole agenda, is to go, we don't believe that. So they're creating this ridiculous scenario to try to say, aha, Jesus, we got you. You, you know there's no such thing as a resurrection. This whole thing doesn't even make sense. That's their real question. Now, the sub-question is, whose wife will she be? That's not the main point. That's not the main question, but it is a, a real question. And interestingly for us, it's kind of the only part of the whole passage that we tend to care about. Yeah, will people be married in heaven? The new heavens, new earth, will they still be married? How does that all work? So that's their question. How can there be a resurrection? That's what this passage is trying to answer, okay? The next question we ask as we study is what answer or answers does the text give? What answer or answers does the text give? So again, the question is, how could there be a resurrection? What answer does Jesus give? Look at verse 24. Jesus said to them, is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God? That's the answer, right? The, the, the question was, you can't believe there's really a resurrection. And the answer is, you're wrong. And you're wrong for two reasons. You don't know the scriptures and you don't know the power of God. Jesus says, you don't know the scriptures, because if you knew the scriptures, you'd know that even the parts of the Bible you affirm do teach about a resurrection, and you don't know the power of God, because if you knew the power of God, you'd be able to imagine that God could do something in the resurrection that's way better than you can think. That's Jesus' answer. Now, we're going to kind of get into this, and actually, in verse 25, Jesus answers the second thing first. He talks about whose wife will she be? How's marriage going to work in this resurrection deal? So he had said, you don't know the scriptures nor the power of God. Then verse 25. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. So Jesus kind of first here says, you don't know the power of God. And what Jesus knew is that the Sadducees' view of resurrection was really just resuscitation. He, they viewed it that you would die and you would just kind of come back to life, right? Like, just like if someone was on an operating table and they coded and they died, and then all of a sudden they came back to life. They're resuscitated. That's how they imagined it to be. 
And Jesus says, no, 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 it's, the resurrection's not resuscitation, it's transformation. There is something fundamentally bigger, fundamentally different, fundamentally more exciting in the resurrection than you even have the imagination to see, right? You don't know the power of God. You can't even imagine this. Well, what is that? Well, we see in verse 25 there that resurrected people will be like angels in heaven. Do you see that? For when they rise from the dead, notice he doesn't say if, he says when they rise, Jesus says they're going to rise, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Notice, this is why when you read the Bible, you've got to read carefully. It doesn't say they will become angels. Right? Sometimes people think, well, my loved one passed, and they're now with God, and they're now an angel. No. No. We don't become angels. We are like angels. Okay, well, then you start to go, okay, well, like angels. How much? A little like angels? A lot like angels? And right, angels doesn't help a lot because we don't know very much about angels. It's like, well, what does that even mean? How do we understand this? A little like angels, kind of like angels, a lot like angels. What is he talking about? Well, this is a point in when you study that you need to start to read other passages of Scripture that might add clarity to this because sometimes the confusing passages are clarified by clearer passages. And this particular story is told in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Right? This is the advantage of the Gospels. You get three different accounts to help provide clarity on some of these things. And in Luke's Gospel, he adds the detail that, they will be, that we'll be like angels in that we cannot die. Angels live forever. Angels cannot die. And in the resurrection, Jesus says, we'll be like angels in that we cannot die. So it doesn't mean all of a sudden we'll have wings or blow trumpets or whatever you think, you know, angels do. It means like an angel, you will not die. You won't merely be resuscitated back into a fallible existence. You will be transformed into an imperishable resurrected body that cannot die. Jesus says you don't understand the power of God. You're not thinking creatively or big enough about what God could do. The next thing he says, or really I guess what he said before that, relates to marriage. So this is getting in their question. Whose wife will she be? Jesus says none of them will be married to her. These, these earthly marriages, they don't continue, is what Jesus says. Look at verse 25. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage. Now, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but depending on your perspective, this could be great news or really bad news right? I mean, you might be in a marriage where you go, oh, I don't want to not be married to my spouse, or you might be secretly going, yes. Someday I'll be free, right? I'm not going to ask you to, you know, don't name names. Don't nudge, you know. But Jesus says marriages aren't going to continue the way that they are here. There won't be marriages. You won't marry or give in marriage. It's interesting um, that Mormons, as well as some evangelicals, believe that when it says don't marry or given in marriage, what it's saying is that there won't be new marriages. So some people would say that the marriages that are here, that have already started, will last forever, but there won't be new ones. Uh, The problem with that is that this same phrase is used not just to describe new marriages, but marriage. 
So as, as appealing as that is, honestly, I mean, I've had times where I'm playing out in the green belt across the street from our house with my wife and kids, and we're there, and the Mormons ride up, and they say, man, you have a great family. And I say, I think you're right. Thank you. And they say, wouldn't you like to be able to live with this family forever? Yeah, I would. I like that. That's a great idea. Right? There's a real appeal to that. Now, I don't think it's true, but it's definitely appealing. And Jesus says, you don't know the power of God because you're not even imagining something that's so much better than you can think. Right, this is the part of the passage, honestly, as I've been studying it, that's been the hardest for me to embrace because I love being married. And I love being married specifically to Molly. I love her. We're close. We grow closer. It seems like every year God is working great things in that. And the idea that I won't be married to her feels like, well, how can that be heaven? And so you have choices to make when you read the scripture and you find something that isn't really what you like. You can go, well, I don't like that part, so I'm just going to explain that away. Or you can go, God, help me to understand this. Help me to humble myself. Help me to see this the way you see this. That's the process. That's the wrestle I've been working through this week. And what I've come to see is that when Jesus says, you don't know the power of God, he's saying there's going to be a transformation that's so significant, the new heavens and the new earth is going to be so much better than you can even imagine, right? This is like a baby in utero being told about the Grand Canyon. They're not going to get it. There's a great illustration I heard from C.S. Lewis. He's a British philosopher from a number of years back, and he, he, he describes it this way. He says, there's a, he said, imagine a little boy who is told for the first time about what sex is. And to the little boy, the greatest thing he can fathom is chocolate. Right, this, chocolate's the greatest thing he can think of. And so he asks, well, is chocolate involved in this? And he's told, well, no, they're busy doing something better. He's like, I'm not interested. I don't want anything to do with it. Now, for us, the greatest thing we can imagine is romance and marriage and sex and intimacy and all that stuff. That's the greatest thing that we can think of. And, and the thought of you, you're going to lose that romance, you're going to lose that intimacy. You go, oh, and, and, and listen, Lewis is saying, no, 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 it's just chocolate. There's something far better coming that all of that intimacy and all of that closeness and all of that pleasure points to something where you won't even feel like you're missing anything because you have so much more of it with God. I think that's what Jesus is saying when he says we don't know the power of God. Resurrection is not just resuscitation, it's transformation. Next thing he says is that you don't know the scriptures. Guys, this is just that your imagination's not big enough and your trust of God isn't big enough. You don't know the Bible well enough, which is an amazing thing. This is like saying to a doctor, you don't know medicine very well. Like you forgot law. The day, the day they taught law at law school, you weren't there kind of thing, right? That classic line. You don't know the scriptures. He says, look, it is taught. Verse 26, as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him? Here he's going to quote from Exodus 3. That's part of their recognized Bible, right? Oh, Exodus. This is where God reveals himself in the burning bush. Jesus says, haven't you read that? Saying, where God says, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. 
You are quite wrong. You are off course. You are missing it. Jesus says, listen, God doesn't say, I was the God of Abraham, I was the God of Isaac, I was the God of Jacob, but I am. In God's mind, for him to be able to say that, what he's saying is that these people are and will be alive. There's a resurrection coming. Jesus says, you just didn't see it because you didn't want to see it, but the Bible teaches that it's true. Now, there's a lot more we could try to talk about, and you may have questions if you want to talk afterward about what will the new heavens and new earth and the resurrection be like. We don't have time to get into that right now. So, where do we go from here? Well, the next question that I think we need to ask when we study the Bible is what insights do otherwise Christians bring? Right, we're very individualistic. We think, oh, just give me my Bible and I'll be able to just tear it apart and understand it. No, 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 that, that rejects the, the idea that wisdom comes from counselors. And God has given his spirit to different people and different ages and different cultures, and it's wise to hear. What do other wise Christians say about this? I was really helped by something that Randy Alcorn says. Randy Alcorn uh, was a pastor and is now an author and has written a lot of books. His biggest book that I know of is his book called Heaven where he tries to look at what's life in the new heavens, new earth. He, when he says heaven, he means the new heavens, new earth, not the kind of spiritual mystery place that we go in the meantime. Here's what he says. He says, one of the things that I emphasize to people is that I really think that we miss something when we say there is no marriage in heaven. The Bible does not teach there is no marriage in heaven. The Bible teaches there is one marriage in heaven. That marriage will be what earthly marriage symbolized and pointed to, to the marriage of Christ to his bride. So we will all be married, but to Christ, to have a lot of marriages in heaven would be like still offering sacrifices after the Lamb of God came and offered the ultimate sacrifice. Our marriage to him is the true marriage, of which the best of earthly marriages was a symbol and shadow. That was so helpful to me all right, my relationship with Molly isn't going to be over. I'm still going to have a memory. I'm still going to know her. We're going to be closer, actually, than we've ever been, and I'll experience no loss because all of the great parts of our relationship point to the one that I'll really have, which is Jesus. That's a great insight. All right, the last thing that we ask as we study the Bible, anytime we study it, is what did the author hope would change in his readers because of this? I hope you know the Bible authors, they don't just write stuff just because they're bored. Well, this would be an interesting story. They're writing to shape a people who are committed to God's mission. They want us to change the way we think, the way we feel, the way we love, the things we focus on. This all is being written for a reason, to shape a people. What is this author wanting to shape in us? First, we would ask, what is he writing to shape in his original audience? Because that's who he was writing to. And by extension, then, what is he trying to shape in us? And here's what he's trying to shape in us. He is trying to shape in us a hope in God and in our future that comes from trusting a resurrected Savior. We need hope, right? Think about the original readers of Mark. They were persecuted. They were the earliest Christians. It was not popular. It was not easy to be a Christian. They might die for their faith. And I think Mark is telling them, have hope. This life is not all there is. Have hope. Have courage. We need to hear that same thing. We need hope. I walk around and I watch TV and I listen to radio and I interact and I just think we are all so afraid. 
totally afraid of everything. We're afraid of what's going to happen in the markets and in the financial world. We're afraid of what's going to happen with our kids. We're afraid of what's going to happen with our health. And is that going to fail? Is that going to break down? We're afraid of how our culture is changing. We're afraid to drive on the I-10 because someone might shoot at our car. We're afraid of all kinds of stuff. We're afraid of cyber attacks. And we're afraid of our house being broken into. And we're afraid of everything. I think Mark comes with this passage and says, don't be afraid. This world is not all there is. There is a coming hope that is better than you can imagine. Take heart, don't fear. And the reason that we can hope in that future is by, because we can trust a resurrected Savior. Jesus Christ has already initiated the resurrection. This is amazing, right? The Jews, they totally believed that a resurrection would happen in the future and everybody at once. They couldn't fathom that only one person would experience resurrection. And yet Jesus did. Jesus is this microcosm of what we'll have, right? He lives his life. He dies At the end, he says, today you'll be with me in paradise, right? His soul is with his father in paradise. Three days later, his soul and body are united, and he's resurrected to a new, unshakable life. The Bible says that that resurrection of Jesus is the first fruits. It's the down payment. It's the movie trailer of what's coming for everyone who will trust in him. And because of Jesus' victory in his resurrection, death can't shake us. Death can't stop us. Suffering can't end our hope. We have a hope that suffering and death can't take away, which is why the Apostle Paul can say, oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Nowhere, because we trust in a resurrected Savior. Is that your hope? Is that giving you confidence today? That this world is not all there is. There's a coming new heaven and new earth. And is it challenging you to put your trust in Christ? Because everyone spends eternity somewhere. This matters. Everything's on the line. This life is just a little blip on a long line of eternity. We have hope because we trust in a resurrected Savior hope you see that from this passage. I hope you're helped by how to study the Bible, but more than that, I hope you see the glory and majesty of Jesus and take heart. You don't have to be afraid. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for your word. God, thank you for the passages that I and that we can read and immediately understand and immediately rejoice in. And God, thank you for these difficult ones that are hard to understand and hard to appreciate. And God, thank you for the hope that this passage gave us and gives us, that there is a hope for resurrected, eternal life with you far better than we can fathom. Give us confidence and trust in that, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Luke.